Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coach's Corner, where I either answer your questions, give you some advice, or talk to a leading thought leader and let them be the coach and expert for the week. And this week, I'm back with another expert on gut health. If you didn't listen to last week's episode with Dr. Shaw, where I talk a little bit about my obsession with gut health due to a recent diagnosis, you want to go back and catch that. I'm so excited to have one of the most amazing thought leaders and experts on gut health and specifically SIBO, which you'll learn about in this episode, Dr. Allison Seebecker. We cover so much ground in this episode and it's really important to listen to whether you have any kind of digestive issues or not, because we really talk about the overall importance of gut health. And part of the reason I'm so passionate about bringing this information to you is not just because it's something that I've been dealing with, but because I think that there's a lot of shame when it comes to anything digestive related. It's something that we don't talk about, yet so much research is showing that so many things are tied to our gut and what we eat and our digestion and what's happening in our intestines. So we need to know about it. We need to start talking about it because the body is always giving us signals and messages and it's important to pay attention. We should be able to enjoy eating, enjoy food and, and feel like our digestion is on track. And if it's not, then something's off and some tweaking may need to occur. So I know you'll learn a lot from this episode. You'll love Dr. Allison's enthusiasm and passion for this topic. I really enjoy talking to her. Let me tell you a little bit more about who she is. Allison Seebecker has worked in the nutritional field since 1988 and is a 2005 graduate of the National University of Natural Medicine, where she earned her doctorate in naturopathic medicine and her master's in oriental medicine. She was the co-founder and former medical director for the SIBO Center for Digestive Health at that clinic and has specialized in the treatment of SIBO since 2010. Dr. Seebecker is passionate about education. She is an instructor of advanced gastroenterology. She's on the IBS Board of Advisors and Faculty for the GI Health Foundation. She's the co-founder and curriculum coordinator of the 2014-2016 SIBO Symposium, and she teaches continuing education classes for physicians and is the author of free educational information on her website, SIBOinfo.com. She's won lots of awards, including Best in Naturopathy, and she's currently writing a book synthesizing the SIBO data into one source. So enjoy my talk with Dr. Allison Seebecker. Dr. Seebecker, thank you so much for joining me. You are someone that I have been internet stalking ever since I found out that I had SIBO, and I'm just thrilled to have you here to share your knowledge, so thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited that we could maybe share information that people might not fully know about. That's exciting. Yes, yes, and thank you to our mutual friend, Sean Croxton, for putting us together. Everybody make sure Yay, to, we love we Sean. Love <laughs> make sure to check out his podcast quote of the day. Um, so I wanted to start by just asking about your personal journey. One thing we talk a lot about on this show is that our karma often becomes our dharma. The things that we suffer most with actually become part of our life purpose in some way as we transform them. And I know that you can probably relate to that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey and what's made you so passionate about our guts. 
Well, you completely nailed it because I have SIBO um, and I've had it since, as far as I can tell, since I was five, about five years old. So, and I'm uh, 48. So that's a long time. Yes. And, you know, I'm one of those chronic folks. I mean, I, I mean, here's the good news. I can say right off the bat that um, while I technically still have SIBO, uh, I've been able to live a very happy life without without many symptoms. So, you know, you can still like, this is one thing I just want to say right off the bat, many chronic diseases of which SIBO is for a lot of people, for the majority, that doesn't mean you're, you know, you could be symptom free and living a happy life. You know, it's it's Yeah. So like those words, we have to be, you know, think about what we're, what like emphasis we're giving those words. Some people take them stronger than they need to. But anyway, back to my Back to my situation. So, yeah, I, I had suffered my whole life. Of course, I had IBS because the IBS and SIBO have the same symptoms. Um, IBS can be caused by other things, too, but I've, I've had SIBO. And, gosh, I suffered. And I did have a lot of pain. I had the constipation type um, of SIBO and IBS. So I didn't have the situation of, you know, running to the bathroom with urgency and pain all day long, not being able to leave the house. I didn't have that. But I had a lot of pain and the pain would be the worst at night. And, you know, I'd be awake all night long, like singing little humming songs to myself, rocking back and forth and stuff really bad. And every time I'd eat, you know, I'd feel awful pretty much, Mm -hmm. pretty much. So, you know, and that's a long time to be going through that from five to, you know, whenever I finally found it, which out about this was like seven years ago, but uh, or eight years ago. But anyway, when I found out, about all the about SIBO and all the different treatments. And for me, the first thing that I found out about was diet. And that's the, so that's the first thing I tried. And honestly, it was like 24 hours. The pain was gone. Mm. And so that is the sort of thing that set me on fire because I just, you know, in here, I'd gone to medical school. I'd gone to naturopathic medical school and no one knew. And so what that showed me is that this is information that's missing from, you know, from doctor's knowledge, from medical school curriculum and from general awareness. And so, you know, it's not anyone's fault. You know, it's not like there's, right. it's not like you do, there's nothing to like blame because I was there in medical school with the best people and of the, the best intentions, you know, these doctors and they did not know. And, you know, when you get diagnosed with IBS, that is just a diagnosis that's a conglomeration of symptoms. And then you have to figure out what's causing it, which most docs, I'm afraid to say, don't. Because like once you get the IBS diagnosis, they don't go searching. They're just like, okay, it's this thing that we don't know. There's nothing to do for it. And that's not true. You know, although I will say a big, a big missing chunk there was the SIBO piece, uh, because that turns out to be uh, the majority cause, like about 60% on average of IBS cases are caused by SIBO. So anyway, that sort of, that experience is what really put the fire under me to have all that pain and suffering and then have it, uh, you know, well, at least have the pain gone in 24 hours. My other symptoms weren't gone, but they were very much reduced. And then, you know, I just continued to, to get better. My God, you know, to think that all the other people suffering with that, it was like I just had to share the information. And also, even though I'm a doctor, before I went to medical school for years, I worked in health food stores. Mm-hmm. And so I was the type of person who I, I worked in the vitamin section, the health section. Um, and so I was the person that people would come in to the store before they would go to a doctor or because they thought their doctor wasn't helping them. you know, mm-hmm. And like, say, what can you help me with? And so that has also also given me a perspective of 
just wanting to get the information into people's hands, like kind of like for free and do it and get better in a day. You know what I mean? Yes. So that's why I, um, I did my website, which is just a free educational website that I put up years ago that it's cause that's why I just, I just wanted this information to be spread farther. And the, the website is SIBOinfo.com. So that's where the passion comes from. And that's, you know, the beginnings of what I started to do. I just really, when you've suffered, I'm sure many people here can relate to this. You're listening. You just want to help others if you find a way out of it. Yes, 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 yes. Well, that's why I'm so excited to be focusing on this on the podcast because, you know, for me, and I shared this in last week's podcast, so many of my SIBO-related symptoms weren't IBS-related. It it was throwing off my thyroid, my hormones. I was having weird eye pain, which totally cleared once I started the treatment. And and I'd been to lots of doctors, including MDs, MDs and MDs, and no one, everyone kind of was like, well, how's your digestion? I'm like, it's fine. I mean, who doesn't get gassy after they ate Brussels sprouts? But it, but I really, I, I kind of always knew there was probably something off there. So let's back up a second, just because a lot of people may not have listened to last week's podcast and may not know what the heck we're talking about when we're saying SIBO. <laughs> So can you take a moment and just define what it is and what causes it? Absolutely. So it stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And the small intestine is sort of in the middle of the digestive tract in the middle of the body. So first we have the mouth, the throat, the stomach, and then comes the small intestine. And then after that is the large intestine, which is actually pretty short. It's it's kind of funny. It's got the name large, but it's it's really short and, and the small intestines really long. So, you know, in medical school, we all joke about that. Like, Oh, it's not fair. The small intestines call small. But anyway, <laughs> um, so normally bacteria are not there very much at all in the small intestine because that's the place we break down, digest and then absorb our food. And if bacteria were there in abundance, they would interfere with that process. And in fact, that is what they do when we do have an overgrowth there, when we have SIBO. So, uh, it's really just when too many bacteria are accumulated in the small intestine. They're, that's just not normal. They're not supposed to be accumulated there. They're supposed to be accumulated and living in the large intestine. Most people know that. You know, when we think of like the good bacteria living in our gut, that's the large intestine, not the small intestine. So that's all it really is. It's pretty much just like what it sounds like. Too many bacteria in the small intestine. And what causes it? Well, that's a longer answer, uh, because there's a lot of different things that can cause it. So this is so complicated. And I spent a lot of years studying this that I found a way to sort of break it down and organize it in my head and for teaching. And this is how I organize this. I think of the underlying causes in the body that could go wrong to allow bacteria to accumulate. So sort of like physiologically or um, anatomically. And then there's all the sort of causes the things we think of that could cause it, or we could also call them risk factors. So let me just say the underlying causes first. There, um, there are things like number one, uh, a slow or, or not well functioning motility or movement of the small intestine. And here we're talking about something that's called the migrating motor complex. And this is just a sort of like a peristaltic movement. But basically it happens in the small intestine when we're not eating. So that means between meals, so long as we're not snacking, and overnight when we're sleeping. And the whole point of the migrating motor complex, pretty much the whole point, is to 
clean and clear the small intestine of whatever might be there, particularly bacteria, because bacteria are always coming in through our mouth. We're always swallowing them. They're just in our environment. Um, and so it's, it sweeps up, it cleans up and that, that motility can be slow or just not working right in people. And it's not, it's not uncommon at all, really. And there are uh, a lot of ways you can, you can have that happen. And that's where we start getting into the causes of the risk factors. There are diseases that can cause that, like diabetes commonly can cause that. Um, and other diseases like systemic sclerosis, hypothyroid. You know, you mentioned, um, that you've struggled with various thyroid problems. Hypothyroid causes a slowness of the, of the motilities. So there's diseases. There's also drugs that can do that. Um, like opioid narcotics, like painkillers we might get after a surgery, that sort of thing. Or if somebody has a severe circumstance or an injury, they might be on them all the time. That can do that. So those are just some, some ways. Now, let me say some of the other underlying causes. Probably the second most common one would be if the, um, anatomy is somehow disordered. Like for instance, of the small intestine. For instance, what if there's a partial obstruction there, meaning like something sort of compressing on that tube of the small intestine or, or kinking it or twisting it or that sort of a thing. And, uh, that's not uncommon either. Some of the causes of that would be things like adhesions, which are like scar bands that form if ever someone has had abdominal surgery or which is pretty common for a lot of people or if there was ever an injury um you know like a fall off a horse or maybe a, a car accident where the steering wheel hits into your abdomen or you know what if there was a fight you know and you, you punched or something or kicked in the abdomen so uh, this wouldn't happen in all cases but if that could lead to adhesions, which could create an obstruction. And there's diseases that can create obstructions like inflammatory bowel disease, endometriosis, um, and a, a pretty long list. So so that would be this the second way. Um, and another sort of just before I, you know, I'll stop before I go too deep into this, but just another way to generally think about how it could be caused is whenever the protective functions that we have that protect us against getting this accumulation fail. So the migrating motor complex is one. Of course, the normal anatomy is another. But then we have things like our hydrochloric acid of our stomach, uh, the bile that is secreted into the upper small intestine, the enzymes that we release and also that uh, line our small intestine. So all of those work against bacterial accumulation. We have our ileocecal valve down at, at the bottom of the small intestine. So this is more of an anatomical thing that that should close off the small intestine from the large intestine, the large intestine being where all the bacteria are. So if that is perpetually open or more commonly, if it's been surgically removed, well, then there's sort of just an open opening there uh, from the large intestine to the small intestine. Now, I will say uh, that the migrating motor complex normally provides a downward current to work against that. But if you additionally, in that case, don't have your migrating motor complex working well, which is actually pretty common, particularly for people who have had surgical removal of their ileocecal valve. Well, then that's a big risk factor. So when any, any of these things are, um, are deficient or, or somehow failing. So one last thing I want to mention on this as a risk factor would be, uh, PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, which are like the third most commonly prescribed and used drug class, I think, at least in the U.S. 
uh, and they suppress our hydrochloric acid of our stomach. And that is a risk factor, actually, for SIBO. It's, it's long debated in the literature, but it, it does show in studies that that's a risk factor. And I do know some people that uh, that's, that's really, we think, how they, how they got there. What are those prescribed for? Well, you know, that's a darn thing. Um, the typical thing that they're prescribed for is uh, heartburn or acid reflux. Uh-huh. So, so a feeling when you get um, a, sort of a burning or, or even a pressure feeling in the upper chest, um, like, like say where we think our heart is, you know, or the sternum area. Uh, but you know what? Unfortunately, gastroenterologists sometimes prescribe them when people don't have those symptoms because maybe they just don't know what else to do. So someone comes in with other symptoms like just general discomfort or nausea or, or even bloating. And then they give them that because it's just what they can think to do. And it, and it's often not such a good idea. And actually, before we leave this whole discussion of cause, I, I would be remiss if I did not mention probably the most common cause or risk factor, uh, of, and it actually can cause a deficient migrating motor complex. And that is food poisoning, which is otherwise known as stomach flu and traveler's diarrhea. All those things are sort of the same thing. This actually is turning out, we realize from um, studies and our clinical uh, experience, to be probably one of the most common ways people get SIBO. In fact, it has its own special name. It's called post-infectious IBS. It's the same thing in this case as SIBO, but it's basically when food poisoning or traveler's diarrhea or stomach flu leads to the symptoms of IBS. And then uh, we actually now know uh, what the whole pathophysiology there is, and that is a very common cause of SIBO. And one last thing before I stop on this is the thing here is that it's often delayed. So it's a very good thing to take note of this because it could be, you know, you went out to a restaurant, you know, you didn't feel well, you threw up. It was no big deal, you know. And then like a month and a half later, you start getting IBS symptoms. That is related. Mm. Oh, man, I've traveled a lot. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, lots of so foreign countries. Of <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't had food poisoning, for God's sake. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and what about stress? Now, stress is an interesting one. Stress definitely factors in. Where where it factors in is that it can shut off a lot of these processes. Uh, stress can shut off the migrating motor complex. It can make it so we won't secrete our hydrochloric acid and our enzymes. Um. So, you know, and also it can it can mess with the function of the valves. So stress matters. However, I will say this. um, I usually don't. I only have one case in all the years of treating SIBO, and that's all I treat. I'm a specialist in this condition. So I've seen a lot of patients. I've only ever once seen someone where stress alone caused their SIBO as near as we can tell. Mm -hmm. So almost always it's stress on top of some of these other risk factors, like like there was a predisposition, um, and then the stress was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Got it. Uh, yeah, Got yeah, it. but it still really matters. And and one other thing I want to say about stress is that, um, on the one hand, we have people who know, maybe they don't know, but they they figure it out eventually. Like stress happens. A psychological stress happens usually, and they're running to the toilet having diarrhea, especially, you know, with IBS and IBD, we see this. Um, I can think of a case where every time a man spoke to his ex-wife, he would then go have 
bloody diarrhea. So these are cases where obviously stress is causing, you know, a reaction in, in the gastrointestinal tract. So mm-hmm. we know that exists. But for a lot of other people, it's not like that. And that just needs to be said because since IBS has not had a cause, a known cause for so many years, it gets blamed on quote unquote stress in a way that is not very productive. You know, like instead of looking for the real cause, you know, it's like, oh, you must be stressed. And meanwhile, a lot of sufferers are like, you know what? I'm really a happy person. It's these symptoms that, that are, are stress- making me stressed yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, and it's very disempowering because it makes you think it's your fault. And if you could just, you know, be more Zen, then you wouldn't be having these symptoms. And that was my case. Like that's because, you know, I got the diagnosis a long time ago. And so, you know what? I did years of all kinds of therapy, you know, and like read every self-help book there was. And you know what? It made me a much better person. And I'm so glad I did that, but it did not solve my GI problem. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. And this is, you know, another reason I'm so glad to be putting this out there is because I think that there's a lot of shame when it comes to our gut and bowel movements and that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's not something that people want to talk about, right? It's a very shameful thing if we have problems in that area. And, but yet our gut health, the more I'm nerding out on all this, the more I'm realizing, oh my gosh, like our gut is everything. I mean, it's so tied to so many things. So if we can just kind of broaden the conversation, because not everybody listening is going to have SIBO, but everybody has a gut. Why? Why does our gut health matter so much? And why is it important for us to start talking about it, talking to our doctors about it, um, really understanding our digestion, what a good bowel movement is, all of those kinds of things? Why does this matter? Yes. Um, and by the way, I'm so glad you brought up that shame piece because I really do forget because like I'm a, I'm a, a doctor who focuses on that. So like I just talk about poo and farting like all the time, you know? So like, I forget that people feel ashamed. (laughs) You would do well at a frat party. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Plus with my history, let me tell you, I can burp like the best of them. (laughs) But here's why gut health matters. Um, There's really two reasons. The first is because, goodness, that's where we are digesting and absorbing our food, our nutrients. So from a general health perspective, it's vitally important that we're getting the nutrients to keep us alive. So that's first. Second is that the gut health seems to be related to so many other parts of our body and the systems of the body. And it's probably because of what I just mentioned, um, because it's, it's so fundamental to keeping us alive. But um, goodness gracious, you, you see it all the time. And like your story is such a good example where uh, we see this all the time, where people have not obvious digestive symptoms. They have something else, uh, like let's just say uh, rosacea or something like that. And they've tried all the basic treatments for that, and it hasn't been working. And so then when, when, you've, when you have something wrong, you've tried the direct and obvious approaches, and it hasn't worked, that's when you start to turn your attention in to the gut. And you wonder, I wonder if it could be that. That's that's where you were saying like the gut just seems to be like everything. And so uh, SIBO itself has a very, very long list of associated conditions like rosacea where this has been studied. So like they'll take rosacea people, they'll test how many have test positive for SIBO and then they'll they'll publish that. You know, and often it's a large amount, like usually always over 50 percent in these conditions. And then they treat them for the SIBO. 
not not anything specific for the rosacea. And then they see how many people's rosacea got better. And it's almost always a large amount. And th- these studies are published and you can actually find them all on my website, SIBO um, info underneath uh, about, I think it is associated diseases. And I've got them all there with the study links. It's, it's actually mind blowing. If you look at all of the associated conditions, it, it really does blow my mind where they've done these sort of things that they've, they've Tested how many people have them, and then they treat the treat the SIBO and see if the other disease gets better. So it's a phenomenal thing. Yeah, and I think that for me, stress kind of pushed me over the the edge, like over that tipping point, and um, where the symptoms really started to show up. And a big one for me, and I shared this last week, was anxiety, like I'd never experienced before. And I tell you what, ever since I started treatment, it I feel like myself again. And I think that that's another way a a lot of people that listen and that call in deal with anxiety, deal with depression. And I'm not at all saying if you have anxiety, you have SIBO, but I think a lot of times we're missing the holistic picture when we look at how we want to treat things. And often our gut health can tie into our mental health. Would you agree with that? Oh my God. I'm so glad you brought this up. Yes. And SIBO in particular, uh, what we see is anxiety. It's one of the symptoms of SIBO and depression can come along with it too. But clinically, we almost always see more anxiety than depression. And there are actually studies on, on this showing that we see about double the amount of anxiety in SIBO. And your point is, is so important because, you know, how many people are sitting around thinking, I'm anxious. I have anxiety. Maybe it's SIBO, you know, (laughs) not many. There is a lot of symptoms like this with SIBO. Like another one is acid reflux where, you know, that's the condition where people are getting proton pump inhibitors for. But uh, a lot of people are not thinking they're thinking ulcer or H. pylori uh, infection would be the cause of their acid reflux. But SIBO can be a cause. So that is an amazing thing. And back to the anxiety thing, I see this over and over in people that they have this anxiety and then we treat the SIBO and it goes away. I mean, I have seen people who have actually had panic attacks their first visit with me. And and you would think, standing back, you would think it's personality-based. Oh, Mm -hmm. they're a type A person or whatever. And then you treat the SIBO and they are no longer like that. It was not personality based. It was disease based essentially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you have little bugs in your small intestine eating up everything that's good, like, of course that's going to affect how you feel, you know? And so I'm, again, like, I'm just, I'm so excited to um, be talking about this because this is a relatively new term. How long has SIBO been around? Well, I think the term um, really got coalesced around the year 2000, but the condition's been known about, I think, for as long as humans have existed. But the thing is, it was just thought to be rare before. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, so it's, you know, there are a lot of articles talking about SIBO in relationship to other diseases like small bowel obstruction and adhesions and uh, systemic sclerosis, all these things. It's very well known about, but it was thought to be rare. And so what happened was in around the year 2000, that's when Dr. Pimentel and his team came out with their theory that SIBO might be the, one of the main underlying causes of IBS. And IBS, 
as we've been talking about this whole time, um, it's the most common gastrointestinal condition in the world. So that is what started people really getting to know about it. So basically their theory was it's not rare. Right. So, right. And our stomachs are supposed to feel good. We're not supposed to feel bloaty or gassy or pain or running to the bathroom or constipated after we eat. Like that's, that's the amazing thing about these, these bodies. And I believe everybody can heal itself. And when we have we know the root cause, we know the diagnosis, then it's so much easier. And and I approach it too, like in, in looking at my SIBO treatment, I'm also looking at, you know, where are the other things I need to look at my stress level? Where am I not listening to my gut? Um, I learned from my acupuncturist today, and you might find this interesting, that the small intestine from a Chinese medicine point of view is related to authenticity, is related to like really speaking our truth, sharing our truth, standing in our truth, which also relates to the thyroid and the whole kind of fifth chakra of our body. So it's just, the body's freaking amazing. And I I love that we're able to have this conversation, not from the place of, oh, this is awful. And like, it's this terrible thing, but really like, wow, this is one of the ways our body is communicating with us. And it is something that we can get to the other side of. Absolutely. This is just all so important. Wait, there was something you just said that was so good. What was it? Oh, that our, that our stomachs and our, you know, our symptoms down there, it should feel good. In fact, it's such a good point. In fact, we shouldn't even be noticing them. It shouldn't even Mm -hmm. be on our radar. And why I think this is a good point is that a lot of people who've suffered a long time, they don't know what normal is. They don't know. They're like, well, what should, you know, what should it be like? Cause how would I know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of life after treatment. So I'm in my restricted diet phase where I'm starving the bugs. Um, and, and it's so funny, all those things that I thought were good for me, loading up on probiotics, take drinking kombucha, <laughs> like it was just, it was just feeding the bugs more. So I'm, I'm relearning how, what my body really likes. Uh, but after we, you, you do the treatment, is it, do most people have to retreat? Is this something that does become chronic? Can you treat it once and be okay? Well, can you have a glass of wine or dessert ever again? Like what does, (laughs) what does life after treatment look like? Man, you better be able to, or what's the point, right? Exactly. (laughs) I really like a glass of wine every now and then. Yeah. So, um, the statistics we have are that about one-third of cases are not chronic, and two-thirds of cases are chronic. And so what that chronic would mean is that uh, we're not, you know, either we haven't identified the underlying cause or we're not able to treat it. There are certainly many circumstances like that. Like just, for example, systemic sclerosis is um, incurable to modern knowledge. I mean, everyone's still trying to figure that out, but um, just as an example. Anyway, so then that would mean we haven't found it or we don't know what to do or we can't do anything for the underlying cause. And so it's likely to relapse and, uh, how, how much it relapses in these statistically two thirds is, is different person to person. There are people that relapse, you know, four times a year. There are people that relapse every two years, you know, so that's, that's going to be based on the person's underlying condition and what's going on. Um, I can say that, you know, I'm, I've mostly treated more, uh, complicated circumstances, just because I'm a specialist. So, you know, the more difficult people come to me. But uh, what I can say is, is that, you know, we'll start out after we get their initial test, their initial SIBO cleared. 
we'll start out with people having um, more frequent relapses, but we just keep working at it. And what I see over time is those relapses spread out and uh, it, it gets better. It gets better and better. But back to the one third, that's the really fabulous uh, group that we want to talk about. Those those folks, you you know, you get their tests gone. I mean, I'm sorry, you get your their SIBO gone or test is negative and uh, and their symptoms are resolved and they don't relapse. So, you know, at least a third of people, that's it. They, they go through their initial, you know, bunch of treatments to get it gone and that's it. And they don't relapse. In fact, a friend of mine, um, she's a practitioner who sees a lot of these cases. Um, she, she sees people back for their other conditions, but they're never complaining again about their SIBO. So it can happen. Now, let me answer your wine and dessert question because that's really important. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so now every practitioner is going to do it differently with how they apply diet. Um, you know, what they're going to say you can eat or can't eat for what period of time afterwards. In general, though, uh, we, we, once it's gone, uh, we start to expand the diet. You know, th- that depends on the pr- practitioner as to when. And so what I usually tell people to do is start with the foods that you most desire and see how it goes. And during this period, you know, we're almost always have someone, at least I always would have someone on a prokinetic, which I, we can talk more about. Um, and, they're keeping an eye on their diet otherwise. So then they can start trying the things they want. So, you know, heck, if somebody's thing they really want is wine, try that out first, see how it goes. The other key here is going to be moderation. Um, so, you know, doing things that are maybe off the diet or that might be uh, a little bit more in- inducing to feed bacteria once or twice a week. You know, start out with once a week, see how that goes, move into twice a week. So moderation is a key there. Um, but absolutely, you can do that. I mean, I know people that have chronic SIBO, uh, meaning that, you know, it's they're always going to be struggling with it. But they go through long periods where they, they're in remission and they're drinking, you know, like a half glass of wine every night and they're not suffering any symptoms. So absolutely, it's possible. And the desserts, too. I mean, there, there are people that can go back to a full diet. Um, I've known people with very complicated cases that could eat, you know, lots of different types of beans and be fine. You know, so it all just depends on the person and where they're at. But uh, certainly you don't the, the, the thing with diet is it's not a cure for SIBO. It what it really does is help assist and it helps symptoms. So it's really just a matter of testing the ground, um, testing the foods, and see, you know, what works for you in terms of triggering your symptoms or not. And everyone's almost always going to find there's, you know, a handful of foods that they just cannot return to, like maybe Brussels sprouts or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, there's a few key things. And then most of the other things, they're fine. Mm. And how do you cure it? Is it through the antibiotics? Well, I guess ultimately the cure would be to to find, to identify, and and cure the underlying cause. Um, but in the one-third of cases that aren't chronic, that's not going on. Usually they're just being treated, you know, right at the level of the SIBO, which is the bacterial overgrowth, not the underlying cause. So they're getting, you know, antibiotics, herbal antibiotics, elemental diet. Uh, those are the main ways we get rid of the bacteria. Those are antimicrobial. And, um, that's it, you know, and then afterwards they're getting, they're getting diet and prokinetic for at least a few months and then that's it. So their underlying cause has never really been identified and obviously it got taken care of. So that's a good thing to know that there's a, you know, at least a third of people or some group of people that, uh, by clearing the bacteria itself, 
the body corrects itself. Mm. And, then, and then there's a larger group of people where there really is something quite distinct going on. Clearing the bacteria is not going to take care of that underlying cause. Like, for instance, somebody who has, um, you know, endometriosis with adhesions obstructing the small intestine, clearing the bacteria is not going to correct that. Got it. So you really have to find a practitioner who's going to really drill down and get to the root cause. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned prokinetics. Can you define what those are? Yes, they're um, either uh, prescription or natural items that stimulate the motility of the gastrointestinal tract, but specifically, um, we're really aiming at the upper gastrointestinal tract, because if we were aiming at the lower gastrointestinal tract, then we would be talking about laxatives, and we're not. These are They're not meant to be like that, so they are sort of a little different than that. And the other thing that they do, well, so anyway, the, before I say the other thing, the point there is to stimulate the migrating motor complex. Now, not everybody who has SIBO has a deficient or improperly working migrating motor complex, but we think the majority do. And so without being, you know, being able to send people for that test, it's a very expensive test. We could talk about it later if you want. Um, we, we sort of guess, we sort of just presume and, and give low dose prokinetics. But the second thing that prokinetics do is they coordinate gastrointestinal motility. They don't, they don't just stimulate it. So for instance, they, you know, open when, if there's food or something in the stomach that you're taking it, it for, it would open the valve at the bottom of the stomach, um, and let the food pass through. And then once it's passed through, it would close the valve at the top, at, at the bottom of the stomach and then open the next valve, that sort of thing. So uh, they can be used for things other than than this circumstance. They are used for things like acid reflux, any sort of upward, backward motion that's going on, they can be used for. So um, what we do with them in SIBO is when we're finished with either in between our rounds of antimicrobials or when we're finished with our uh, rounds of antimicrobials, we use uh, prokinetics at a pretty low dose just to get a little stimulation of the migrating motor complex. Mm, mm. One thing that I learned about the migrating motor complex is the importance of taking space between meals. And this kind of segues to my next question, which is just people that have SIBO, don't have SIBO, just overall good gut health. You know, like we hear good heart health, you want to eat good fats. Let's just talk about overall gut health. And one of the things that I am learning is I've kind of been a, a grazer. I'd have yeah. my meals, but then I'd snack, you know, I'm hungry two hours later. Um, and I've, what, the, something that's been challenging for me is to take three to four hours between meals and give my, that, what do you call it? The migrating yeah, the migrating motor complex. I, I, I picture, to work. Yeah, yeah I, I grew up in Texas, and I picture those pool sweepers, you know, that come through yes. the pool. <laughs> we, we can call it the MMC for short. MMC, that's much easier to pronounce. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you talk about other like good gut tips that just just things that we can do that are just good for our gut? Well, that's probably a, a key one. And if people are having trouble um, not snacking, then we need to take a look at the composition of the meals and um, often more protein or fat is needed uh, but you need to probably start need to play around with that um, with the composition and even the portion sizes to see what can last you longer I in particular in SIBO patients I know notice that um, dairy like lactose-free dairy is very helpful for that to help them not be so hungry between meals. But so another thing with these, uh, you know, not, not grazing would be also not eating before bed. It's a similar concept, but that's very good for gut health and very hard to do if you've got the munchies at night, you know, mm -hmm. but for how long before bed, 
yeah, you probably want to leave about two hours yeah. before bed um, without eating. Um, so that's that's probably some of the main things that's good for gut health. Um, I think other things are going to be things like uh, being in a relaxed state when you're eating, so activating the parasympathetic nervous system when you're eating. So taking a moment, it could just be one conscious breath before eating, just that to shift out of your work mode or your stress mode into the digest and eating mode. Another thing that can help is uh, gratitude. So the the classic grace, you know, um, saying grace or just even inside your own self, taking a moment to feel grateful for the food that you're about to eat. That activates the parasympathetic and the parasympathetic does all those rest and digest processes, the hydrochloric acid and the enzymes and the migrating motor complex. So that's another thing that's good for gut health um, is, is re- being relaxed at your meals as best you can. So, you know, obviously like the classic scenario of the family that's fighting at the dinner table, not so good. Yeah. Know? Or eating in front of your laptop, guilty or in the car, yeah. like driving to work. You know, a lot of people do that. So yeah. And chewing. Uh, that's one that thing I've been focusing on. I was going to say, so you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think, you know, I, first of all, I love to eat. Um, and, but I, I noticed that I am a fast eater. And so I've really had to be conscious about slowing down and chewing my food because I'm learning digestion really starts in our mouth. Yes, you nailed it. My, um, my partner, uh, my, uh, in SIBO, my practice partner, he always says, there are no teeth in the stomach. So, so it's like wow. you can't just swallow the food whole and expect it to get broken up by teeth down there. Um, that's a very soft region. So, and our teeth are very hard. They're, you know, does anyone, do you watch a, a Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? No. Oh my God. It's a hysterically funny show. And one of the characters calls teeth outside bones. So, uh, you know, they're like they're bones. So they are very tough and we do need to chew our food well. Um, we're supposed to chew our food till liquid. That is really hard to do. So just as much as you can get into the habit, the slowing down will help. And, you know, um, Timothy Ferris spoke about this. He's so funny. He said that he cannot do it. And so he can't like, he can't chew a lot. He's tried and tried. So what he does is he divides his plate into like pie slices of whatever he's eating wedges so that he doesn't take down too much at once because he just can't get get himself to chew. So hey, whatever works for you. <laughs> smaller bites, smaller bites. I love it. He'll hack anything. I love Tim Ferriss. Um, well, this is great. Speaking of hacking, you thank you for hacking SIBO and making it something that we understand and that we have awareness of. And just thank you for just bringing light to our gut health and taking the shame off of it and for dedicating your your life and your work to helping so, so many people. So please share where people can, you mentioned the website, but share that again, where people can find you. And I believe you also have a summit coming up that people can take part in. Yes. So my website is SIBO, S-I-B-O, info.com. It's just free educational website. There's so much there for you if you want to learn. And um, yeah, so we just did, um, a partner of mine and I just did a SIBO SOS summit and we had a great time and it's ma- been made evergreen. So anybody who's interested in that can just go to SIBOSOS.com and they can partake in the uh, summit. So it's it's five days of free, um, you know, lectures. Um, and then we're doing a part two starting October 21st. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Seabrecker. This has been so helpful 
to me and to, to people that are listening. Any final words of wisdom or advice or encouragement that you'd want to share, especially for people that are listening that are going, oh man, this is kind of sounding familiar. Maybe I have this. What would you say to them in terms of next steps? I, yes, thank you for asking. I would say that uh, two things. One is that if you haven't been tested for SIBO, that's a great place to start, and that test is the lactulose breath test, and you would uh, uh, hopefully want to get a three-hour test. That's the best option. So just get the test and find out if you have it, if you're wondering, and it's a, a pretty easy-to-do test. So that's the first thing I'd say. And then the second thing I'd say is if you're if you if you know you have it you're already undergoing treatment uh just don't give up hope and and don't quit uh because if you if you have a more chronic type it can take multiple rounds of treatment uh to get it gone and stick with it uh, sometimes the doctors don't stick with it but but you stick with it find another doctor and keep going and also for somebody who maybe doesn't know they have SIBO and they're just wondering and they're thinking well maybe I'll get the test also don't don't give up either. Uh, keep going. Find people to figure out what's wrong with you. And, um, you know, if you get tired of that effort, uh, take a break and then get back at it. You know, there's going to be someone that can help you figure out what's wrong and help you through it. I, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. What my teacher said at, at University of Santa Monica, where I got my master's degree, is how you relate to the issue is the issue. And so if you're feeling like you have SIBO or you have GI problems, really take the shame off of it. Take the hopeless, helpless off of it. Try to be empowered as best you can to find the practitioners that can really help you and know that the body is healable. And and I think that you're such an inspiration for that because you're living with SIBO and you sound full of energy and life. And it sounds like you're really, <laughs> really enjoying your life. So it's it's obviously not something that has to negatively impact your life. Yes. And you know what? Also for, for people out there, um, Hey, just know there's people like me that love all this stuff. We're excited about it. We want to help you. You know, there's a lot of people like myself. I mean, all my colleagues were like, we geek out over it. There's nothing more fun and interesting to us. We, we want to help in this way. So just know there's people like that out there. You'll find them. Oh, I love that. That's like me when, when, I, I get excited when people come and they say they have a massive expectation hangover, disappointment in some way. I'm like, yes, this is great because that means you're going to change and transform and that's so awesome. <laughs> so I get it. And thank you for, for saying that to people because I think it's so important to find the right practitioner to work with um, so that if you're frustrated with a doctor or current practitioner, find another one. Because like Dr. Seabrecker said, there are people out there. There definitely are. And thank you for being one of those people. And thank you, Christine, for everything you're doing. My pleasure. 